Hey there, it's Martine. And before we start today's show, we just want to make a call out for some questions about the pandemic. So a lot of people were really struck last week when Dr. Fauci said that we are out of the, quote, pandemic phase. He then came back and clarified that he meant that we're out of the acute phase of the pandemic. And then he said we're out of the, quote unquote, full-blown explosive pandemic phase. But all of these terms really confused us. Like, how are we supposed to be thinking about this moment? So we are going to ask one of our science reporters about it. And if you have questions about this, send us an email or voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. And thanks. I'm very pleased to introduce the man with by far the best chance to defeat the radical Democrat nominee for the U.S. Senate this November. At a rally at a fairground in Ohio in late April, former President Trump officially endorsed Senate candidate J.D. Vance. Vance is 37 years old. He's a political commentator and venture capitalist. And for a long time, he was best known for his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. It came out in 2016, and it was about his life growing up poor in Appalachia. Back in those days, J.D. Vance frequently denounced President Trump. But that all changed when he started running for Ohio's open Senate seat. And you know what? You know what? He's a guy that said some bad about me. He did. He did. But you know what? Every one of the others did also. In fact, if I went by that standard, I don't think I would have ever endorsed anybody in the country. You want to know? On Tuesday, Ohio voters will choose a Republican nominee to replace Rob Portman in the Senate. This was a big, messy, crowded primary, but two candidates seem to be frontrunners. One of them is a far-right candidate, former state treasurer Josh Mandel, and the other is J.D. Vance. With the Senate deadlocked 50-50, the outcome of the general election in Ohio in the fall could swing the balance of power. And ever since he won Trump's endorsement, Vance has suddenly started pulling ahead in some polls. The president is right. I wasn't always nice, but the simple fact is he's the best president of my lifetime, and he revealed the corruption in this country like nobody else. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 2nd. Today, J.D. Vance and what his 180 turnaround on Trump says about what it takes to win in the Republican Party right now. The question that everybody has been asking about J.D. Vance has been what happened? Simon Van Zylenwood is a magazine writer, and he spent several weeks last fall following Vance on the campaign trail. So before Vance was this pro-Trump, America-first Senate candidate, he was known on the left and the right as someone who could demystify Trump and explain how he suddenly went from being this fringe candidate to the president. Because J.D. Vance himself had a pretty remarkable trajectory. He grew up in Middletown, Ohio. He had a totally chaotic childhood. His family struggled with drug use and poverty. And then he got out. He went to the Marines. He went to Yale Law School. And then he wrote this book, Hillbilly Elegy, that became a bestseller. 
It was eventually made into a movie on Netflix. And because of his upbringing, Vance was seen as someone who could speak to the experiences of white working class Trump voters. He was uh, in The New York Times. Vance appeared on NPR a couple of times. I think that a lot of folks are more motivated by this sense that things just aren't going especially well and nobody really cares about them. He gave a TED Talk. Despite all outward appearances, I'm a cultural outsider. I didn't come from the elites. I didn't come from the Northeast or from San Francisco. I came from a southern Ohio steel town. And it's a town that's really struggling in a lot of ways, a ways that are indicative of the broader struggles of America's working class. He was in all the kind of acceptable liberal places. He was speaking a language that liberals and the sort of political and media establishment could understand. In fact, he was kind of a Trump translator. And he was an acceptable one because he was anti-Trump. Well, what do you mean by a Trump translator? Well, his book came out in the summer of 2016. And this was before Trump had won the election, but after he had secured the nomination for the Republican Party. And so a lot of people were in shell shock. This seemed to come out of nowhere. And J.D. Vance was writing a memoir about Trump country, for lack of a better word. Appalachian, Kentucky, and Rust Belt, southwestern Ohio. These are places that disaffected white working class voters were swinging for Trump. And J.D. Vance had grown up with these folks. But crucially, he himself disavowed Trump. For a lot of the folks back home who voted for Trump, who were excited about the prospect of a Trump candidacy, it's really important for them to recognize why there are so many millions of Americans who aren't just upset about the prospect of a Trump presidency, but are actually afraid. And the flip side of it is that if we can recognize that a lot of the people who voted for Trump are not racist and in fact don't even like a lot of the rhetoric that came out of Trump during the campaign, but they voted for him because he represented a change. And so he was a kind of acceptable Trump translator. He was someone who could explain the pathologies that brought us here uh, without endorsing the candidate himself. He was sympathetic towards the voters, but not the candidate. I'm a never Trump guy. I never liked him. Now, of course, all of that has changed. Vance's former employer, the venture capitalist Peter Thiel, raised a bunch of money for Vance to run for the Senate. And Vance hit the campaign trail with a completely new outlook on Trump. He's basically kind of prostrating himself all the time to these voters saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I changed my mind. In fact, even in his stump speech, he basically brings it up before they can. But let's just address the elephant in the room, is that five, six years ago, I criticized President Trump or then-candidate Trump. I was not an early adopter of President Trump. And the only thing I can do is be honest about it. You guys have all seen the ads. They say I'm anti-Trump. I changed my mind. There's nobody more pro-Trump than me. And so that's for every single day. It's like a band that like has to play. It's like Leonard Skinner has to play Freebird every time they do a show. And they probably hate it. <laughs> every time he goes anywhere, he has to do this like 10-minute like grovel. So how does he account for that? The fact that he was so outspoken in his opposition to Trump a few years ago and now is essentially both pro-Trump and also using Trump's ideas in a way that is he's sort of making his own. Yeah. The political calculus is if you want to win in the Republican primary, you, you just have to say you're pro-Trump. The party is captive to him. And so on some level, I don't think he's actually decided in the last two years, he suddenly thinks Trump is actually a wonderful guy. What he would say and I think there's some truth here, is that when he did critique Trump, it was often for not actually following through on his populist promises. That, you know, it, just before he ran for Senate, he announced his campaign in early 2020. He was on a podcast and was talking about Trump's greatest failure as president. He said, I don't think it was his handling of the pandemic. I think it was 
It was his big corporate tax cut and his attempts to try to repeal Obamacare. Vance has had to spend so much of his campaign just convincing voters that he's pro-Trump. But he also has his own ideas about what's wrong with America and how to fix it. After the break, we hear more about what Vance told Simon he would actually try to do in the Senate. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Simon ended up following Senate candidate J.D. Vance around on the trail for weeks early in his campaign. And he saw firsthand how much Vance had changed. He'd changed his stance on Trump. He no longer wanted to be friendly with the liberal elite. But the most immediate thing that struck Simon about the new J.D. Vance was the beard. I mean, the very first thing that I noticed about him and I guess I somehow hadn't put it together until I saw him in person, and it sounds frivolous, but I think it's important, is his facial hair. He's got this beard. <laughs> He's got this Don Jr. looking beard. And if you remember him from five, six years ago, he had this kind of round, cherubic kind of baby face. And he was mm-hmm. young. He was 32, I think, when Hillbilly Elegy came out. And now he, you know, he looks like he is going to go hunting or something. I mean, it's a very conscious decision <laughs> to, to kind of cover up his soft side. And he's got this aggressive look. There was this one event in the ex-steel town of Steubenville near the West Virginia border. He had this like massive like cup in his hand. He's like, he's got this kind of populist, like every man, like, hey, I drink like, you know, 32 ounce Mountain Dews kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. That was what Mm -hmm. I was getting from from Vance. Like, no, no, like I know that I went to Yale Law and I know that I was like a liberal darling and I blah, blah, blah. Actually, but, but this is the real me. Like I just, yeah, you know. like Middletown JD. Like forget all that stuff. Like actually, I'm just, I'm, uh, you know, go, go Bengals. You know, and there's part of that which is true. Like he is from this world. Like you know, and again, this is politics. It's theater. There are these self conscious attempts to be a kind of man of the people. So when you hear him on the internet, he's essentially adopting a kind of right wing culture warrior pose where he seems to be owning the libs left and right. It's just lib owning. Are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? The media calls us racist for wanting to build Trump's wall. They censor us, but it doesn't change the truth. Joe Biden's open border is killing Ohioans, with more illegal drugs and more Democrat voters pouring into this country. He evinces a kind of economic populism that most of his Republican opponents don't. Every institution in our society is controlled by people who are getting rich and getting powerful. That is our challenge. Not just better politicians, not just better leaders, but to replace the American elite with a group of people who actually care about all of us, about our fellow citizens, about the greatest nation in the world. So he talks a lot about manufacturing. He talks a lot about opioids. He talks a lot about the issues that have kind of riven his community and culture and that he wrote about in Hillbilly Elegy. He's trying to distinguish himself by saying, I care about these real middle class issues and the Republican Party can care about these middle class issues. Ladies and gentlemen, our constitution gives us the power to fight back against these battles. 
We can bring manufacturing jobs back to this country. We can tell our schools they have to stop indoctrinating our children. We can make it possible for middle class people to support a family on a single wage. And we can stop the madness coming out of Washington, D.C. We don't have to talk about cutting taxes for rich folks. We don't have to talk about super divisive issues, pro-life stuff, that kind of thing. He tends to avoid it, actually. Even though online Mm. he seems so aggressive and bellicose, in person he's trying to say, I'm the guy who's going to be able to cross over and get Democratic voters. And he actually doesn't see that as that different from the trolling the libs kind of stuff because he feels liberals in general have left the working class behind. So he sees a connection between the culture war stuff and the class war stuff. Now you have a set of leaders that are proud of the fact that they're shipping American jobs overseas, that are proud of the fact that they're layering the next, ge- the next generation up with debt, not giving them any useful skills in the process. They're proud of the fact that they're indoctrinating American children at schools to hate themselves and to hate the country that they came from. Vance is a core member of a splinter of Republican views called national conservatism. It focuses on closing borders, taking down big business, and promoting traditional Catholic values. It's a kind of articulation or a marriage of more traditional right-wing and more populist right-wing views. And so I'll give you an example of, of a data point that I noticed that sounded very different from hillbilly elegy. Hmm. In 2019, this was the year of the very first National Conservatism Conference. This is this ideological splinter group that sounds a bit more populist. He gave a speech called Libertarianism Isn't Enough or something like that. And he talked about how he thought porn, for example, was destroying the minds of young people. But he also talked about how the private sector was not the engine that conservatives thought it was in terms of building prosperity and fairness for average Americans. And so you see this place where he thinks that the world is too wide open. It's too permissive. It's essentially, it's a critique of neoliberalism. He thinks there's not enough borders anywhere. There's no borders governing the Hmm. way we conduct ourselves in private. But there's also, he thinks, not enough borders around private industry, not enough borders literally around the country, you know, he basically wants to, to retrench. And it's, it's a kind of nationalist, populist vision. And so there, there's a way in which it's a kind of tweak on Trumpism. Vance is basically road testing in real time whether this kind of populist Republicanism actually has legs or is it just the Trumpism that people liked all along? What do we know about the answer to that question of what would he actually do if he were elected? The best way to try to game it out is to look at some of the figures in the Senate who are currently closest aligned to him. And that would be Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri and Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. These are guys that are essentially the national conservative wing of the Senate. I think Vance as senator would try to put into practice what I would define as national conservatism. So that is being skeptical of big business, hawkish on trade and borders. He's staunchly Catholic. And so there's this way in which I think what he would do is he would argue for firmer border control. He would try to reimpose or continue Trump-style tariffs on steel and foreign imports. He would, I think, go after some of this anti-monopoly kind of legislation. I think he would try to put, quote, big tech in his crosshairs. I don't think, though, he would go so far as to propose a big new domestic spending plan. I don't think he would have the juice to really attack Republican tax cutting. I think he would line up behind all of the right's social policies. I mean, he's 
He tries not to talk about it much on the trail, but he's definitely pro-life. I'm pretty sure he used to be, according to his friends, in favor of same-sex marriage. When I asked him about it, he basically said, ah, it's up to the states. My views on marriage are consistent with using the Catholic Church. Now, that said, I think, obviously, the Supreme Court has basically taken this away from legislators. And so uh, it's not like it's going to be something that I have a profound effect on in the U.S. Senate. You know, he kind of kind of dodged, but if he's a real right-wing Catholic, he doesn't support that either. And so I think he lines up behind all the social policies of the right, probably avoids some of the real kind of sacred cows like taxes, and then tries to be populist on trade, borders, big business, anti-monopoly legislation. I think Republicans have woken up to a world where their pro-business rhetoric and ideology consists with the fact that a lot of our biggest corporations are actively aligned against our, our values. This Senate race in Ohio matters because it exposes a ideological fissure or rift within the Republican Party, which I think is often obscured by Trump's capture of the party, which is this rift between the traditional tax cutter, Tea Party inflected right, and the more populist national conservative right, which is represented by Vance. The Senate is deadlocked to 50-50, and so this is going to be one of the presumably tight races that could swing control of the Senate one way or the other. Simon Van Zylenwood is a writer for The Washington Post magazine. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by me and Maggie Penman. Big thank you to Sean Sullivan and Dave Weigel. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.